Okay, and uh, welcome back to class. I'm Tom, obviously, and uh, today we're going to be working through some of, the, some of the stuff on Aristotle's Poetics. And uh, what I want to do, what my plan here is to kind of give you a breakdown of the history in which Aristotle is, is coming into. Uh, you know, the, the context of his philosophy, and then some of the kind of big takeaways of the the poetics itself. All right, so let's start with the history and let's start with the, the kind of the big picture stuff. So in the 5th century BC, the Persians invade Athens, and they're kind of beaten back by Athens and forced to retreat. Okay, so the the Athenian fleet was the big deal here, and they played a major role in driving back the Persians in the real decisive battle of Salamis. And in that battle, they had they defeated the Persians. This is 480 BC. And so Athens is like the golden boy at this point. They take control over um, not only their own home, but over many other city-states in the Aegean area. So this is the, the, the Aegean Sea in ancient Greece. Um, they established kind of a, a radical democracy, um, which goes through, through different phases. It's not entirely a consistent democracy, maybe in the way we think of it, but it's very different from, let's say, the, the kind of structure Persia had. Um, they start to establish much more of an empire. They um, they take in this revenue from their empire, and they start to develop the kind of festivals that we've been talking about, the City of Dionysus Festival, um, and, and uh, th these kind of great theater stuff as well. So another interesting fact about this period is Aeschylus, the, the playwright we talked about, um, he actually fought in the Battle of Salamis. So, another interesting fact, so 468 BC, this is the first year in which Sophocles competed against Aeschylus and was able to take home first prize. And so, uh, you know, then we, we see this developing and we already see a second generation of great dramatists arising. Um, in 461, the great leader Pericles takes control of Athens, and he really here ushers in the Golden Age. So when we're reading Oedipus Rex, we're reading Oedipus Rex, a play that is occurring around the time when we're in the Golden Age of, of Athenian life. You know, it's like America in the 1950s. Um, Pericles was a, a real loved and respected leader. He was a very wealthy citizen. He actually um, produced the play The Persians by Aeschylus. So we talked about the wealthy citizens who produced these plays just for the honor of it. Pericles was one of these people. Uh, his politics were decidedly populist and he appealed to kind of uh, lower income people in order to gain political power. Um, one of those appeals was in the form of playwriting. He permitted the poor to watch plays without paying. So he had the, the city kind of pay the admission for poor people. Um, and he eliminated a lot of property requirements for a lot of offices that people might want to hold. So a lot of public offices. 
Um, and Pericles was, was very popular, um, and his popularity increases during the Peloponnesian War. Okay. Uh, and so in 431, we start to see, 431 BC, we start to see the Peloponnesian War begin. Um, the, the Peloponnese or Peloponnesi uh, had been these Athenian allies against Persia. They were these city-states in the kind of the Aegean area. And they teamed up with Persia way back when, back in 480, you know, 50 years before, in order to defeat um, a, a common enemy. But now Athens had kind of taken over. They had dominated. And a lot of these city-states were not happy. So these city-states led by Sparta, you know, if you, if you know the movie 300, the, those guys, um, they led them into a war against Athens, a war that lasted for 27 years, ultimately resulting in the defeat of Athens. Um, Pericles dies in 429. Um, in, after the destruction of Athens, the ground force was destroyed in 413, once Athens attempted to attack Sicily. So they tried to fight in Sicily, they were destroyed. The Athenian navy was destroyed in 405 um, BC, and that kind of was the end of it. And that was kind of the end of Athens. At the same time, um, in 406, both Euripides and Sophocles die. And so between 406 and 405, great playwrights die, and then Athens, the, the glorious golden age of Athens, is over. Uh, Pericles at this point has been dead for, you know, more than 20 years. Um, and Athens then was defeated, subjugated to the other city-states in the Aegean. So, what you're seeing when it comes to the kind of the era of the great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, is really kind of in the generation after the great playwrights. Um, and uh, Socrates is really in the middle of it, but what you're seeing with the great philosophy, especially the, the Socratic and post-Socratic philosophers, is that they're not doing their work in the Golden Age the way playwrights are. They're doing their work after the Golden Age. And not only after the Golden Age, but after it was after Athens was kind of smushed, uh, so to speak. Um, now Plato was born sometime in the 420s. We're not sure. So the the Peloponnesian War isn't over by then, though Pericles is dead. Um, but he founded his academy. We know this year 387 BC, um, and a lot of scholars see this flourishing of thought, and the academy is kind of the first school of philosophy in the West, but they see this flourish, flourishing of thought as a, a response to a society being destroyed and subjugated. It's kind of like asking the question, why did this happen? What went wrong? And when you start to ask those questions, they spark complex rationales, complex ideas, system building, and as a consequence of this, 
you start to see philosophy rise in a kind of more organized and more uh, diligent way. So, 384, Aristotle is born. Uh, he's a Macedonian, so that's just north of Greece, um, and he becomes a student of Plato. Aristotle is, is very famous because he rejects Plato's concepts of forms. Now, for Plato, forms are kind of unchangeable things not of this world that create a variety of, of things in the actual world. One example of this might be a triangle. We could see things that are triangular um, in the world, but there is this ideal version of the triangle. The, you know, the, the angles add up to 180 degrees, um, and in the world we'll probably never encounter a perfect triangle. However, we recognize the commonalities between things that are somewhat like a triangle, somewhat shaped like a triangle, and Plato thinks that there is a form in, in a non-world, in a space above us, you can think, um, that contains these forms and kind of generates reality out of them. Um, Aristotle pushes back against this. Aristotle is very much interested in change in the real world, not in ideals and their lesser equivalent. Um, there's a very famous painting, a fresco by Raphael, which if you saw it, you would recognize it, known as the School of Athens. It was painted between 1509 and 1511 um, in, uh, in the Vatican. And in the painting, we see a picture of Plato, and he's pointing up, and there's a picture of Aristotle, and he's pointing out. So Plato's pointing up towards form, forms, Aristotle's pointing out towards the real world. And what Aristotle is definitely interested in is, as I said before, change. Um, he's, he even invents the word physics for the study of change. It comes from kind of the Greek word for change. Um, and locomotion becomes the study of nature because the real world, the world we live in, is characterized by movement, by change, by one thing becoming something else over time. Now, when we get into the arts, when we get into poetics, we're tapping also on the door of political philosophy. Plato sees poetry, which is also the word for drama. At this point, drama and poetry are sort of uh, um, not really escapable from one another. Um, so, but Plato sees poetry and drama as being a danger to the political order, and he would very much like to toss out all of the poets from his kind of ideal political state. Um, this comes out in probably Plato's most famous work, The Republic. Um, his problem with poetry and with uh, drama is that, well, a number of things. One thing is that it inspires the emotions, and once you're captured by your own pathos, you are no longer engaging in the kind of rational 
decision making that uh, you know responsible citizen of a ideal polis would be engaged in so you're kind of distracted by by this stuff furthermore mimesis mimesis is the imitation of something the imitation of life for plato mimesis is also very very bad because it gives a pale version of the true form of something um, therefore poetry uh, kind of appeals to the weaker side of our mind and soul both in terms of the, the kind of emotional access poetry has to us but also because you know poetry is, is part of drama it provides a weak version of something and so we're kind of drawn into this corrupt pale imitation of life poetry then in so doing becomes a kind of madness it becomes a virus that possesses us and drives us crazy uh the the inspiring the irrational side of our nature to carry us away now aristotle is not having any of this his work, the, the Poetics, which is the first surviving Western broad critique of, of theater. It's, it's really like the first pit of literary criticism that exists um, and therefore is extremely important. And not only is it important because it's the first, you know, so thumbs up to that. Uh, it, it's also important because a lot of what he says still persists to this day um aristotelian biology eh, you know we we <laughs> we don't really need that anymore we we don't use those those terms anymore though we still use the term biology but the aristotelian poetic concepts a lot of them are still part of our discourse on theater how we describe theater and therefore the poetics maybe more than almost any other kind of Greek work survives in a practical sense, not just in, an, in a way of entertaining us, but in a way of instructing us. So with that, uh, with that sales pitch, um, I'll let you know that part of what the Poetics is saying is that mimesis, imitation, this thing Plato didn't like, it's actually a positive thing. Why? Well, we learn from it. We delight in it, and we also possess a desire for harmony, and a playwright can structure an imitation of life in order for it to be harmonic. Um, the good guys can get their just rewards, the bad guys can also get their just rewards. Uh, there's a, a sense maybe of something tragic, but something that heals, right? We can move on from it. Um, there's, there's kind of closure in drama. And it's pleasurable to watch, and there's that. But it's also something we can look at and learn from. The lessons of drama are something we can, we can take away and apply in our own lives. We're not driven mad by these things, though we do have a, um, an emotional response to them. But in fact, the emotion brings us to the lesson. Um, and I think lesson is might be a strong word. It's not necessarily didactic, um, but it lets us contemplate life, just like we kind of did with the, with watching 
or reading Oedipus and discussing it, thinking about ideas of responsibility. There isn't a hard, fast lesson in Oedipus about political force and responsibility. Instead, what we get is something uh, like the discussion we had, where we think of, is he, as a ruler, doing the right thing? Uh, is he not? And our, our discussion was, I think, pretty good, fairly rational. We weren't, we weren't carried away by the madness of the poetry of Sophocles or anything like that. Then that's Aristotle's point. So this is what Aristotle says. He says that the mimetic process transforms a story, and the word he uses for story is praxis, into an organized plot or mythos. Um, sometimes spelled M-Y-T-H-O-S, sometimes M-U-T-H-O-S. Um, so therefore, the mimesis of a praxis is a mythos. So I'll, I'll say that again. The mimesis, that is the imitation of life, the mimesis of a praxis, so the, the imitation of a story becomes a mythos, becomes an organized plot. So this is really three-dimensional, right? Once we start imitating life, start imitating this, a story we know, doing that well transforms it into a plot. It, it organizes it. The events of a mythos should move in accordance with necessity, probability, and inevitability. So there should be a link between cause and effect, necessity, uh, probability, uh, probably determined actions, so actions that probably would happen, as well as a sense of inevitability or what we might think of as a sense of fate. Um, it, it should feel like this thing is bound to happen, which we get with Oedipus, obviously. And just to, to say it again, I know I've said it in class, Oedipus is the model Aristotle works off of. Um, the episodic play, some of which apparently existed, uh, you know, existed long enough for Aristotle to have access to them. For, for Aristotle, the episodic play is defined as those things which don't do this. It's no longer uh, an entire play or an entire organized mythos. It's a collection of episodes. The Aristotelian play does create a, uh, a mythos that moves with necessity, probability, and inevitability. Furthermore, Aristotle has his unities, and his unities are kind of these rules for constraining a tragedy. And so he draws these unities from Oedipus the king. And here they are, here are the three unities. So plot uh, takes place in less than a day. The plot should have one action that has a, a minimum amount of subplots. And the play should take place in a single physical space. And so there's our, our three unities of um, of a, a tragedy or a play, right? Those three things. Furthermore, he takes a look at the, the, I guess what we might call the flow or the direction of the plot. A plot should have a beginning, middle, and end. It's shaped like an inverted V. So 
a series of complications, a, a rising action. Um, these rising actions build to a climax. Um, and then after the climax, the the unraveling or the denouement, which is a fancy word for the kind of the falling action. So the play builds to a climax, the secret is revealed, and then for the rest of the play, everything kind of falls apart. Okay. Um, the best plots, according to Aristotle, are marked by a reversal and or recognition. Um, reversal is when the hero's life goes from good to bad. Uh, this, this moment in Greek is known as the peripeteia. Uh, I had a, a professor who referred to the peripeteia as the shift to shit. It's the moment when everything falls apart. You know, when Oedipus learns that he was the baby who was carried to the hill, or he was the baby who the uh, the shepherd passed off, right? That's the peripeteia. That's when we're not going back. Okay? Also, Aristotle talks about the anagnorisis. This is uh, when the hero moves from a state of ignorance to enlightenment, um, when there's a revelation of the truth. And so we, we also see this with Oedipus. Oedipus is enlightened, and his enlightenment is simultaneously his peripeteia. Okay. Um, for Aristotle, then, the plot is the soul of tragedy. His writing, his poetics, are about the development of plot. He is less interested in character. He writes about character, and tragedy should feature a regal character, or regal characters, but really the soul of, of tragedy. For tragedy to do what it needs to do successfully, it's not necessarily to construct complex characters, the way we might say in Shakespeare, but it's really to develop a great plot, right? A great mythos. All right. Um, last thing uh, I will talk about is um, some kind of uh, stuff about what makes a hero, the hamartia, the, the catharsis, um, and, and all that stuff. And then we'll, we'll close out. So even though we're not talking about the development of characters per se, it's important to be able to define the hero for Aristotle. And he lists a few things. So the hero must be a good man. Um, he's not vicious. He's not immoral. He is appropriate to his station on life. So if he's a king, he somehow deserves to be a king. If he's a god, he, I don't know, deserves to be a god. That might be the wrong way of saying that. Um, but if he's, you know, praised for, for being heroic, then a hero kind of deserves that praise. He must possess a likeness to human nature. So he, he's recognizable, even though he's sort of lifted off. He, he's above us in terms of class rank. He also has a recognizable human nature. He is consistent. Um, and then lastly, he should not be a commoner. So as I said before, he, he is above us, um, but he's still recognizably human, but he's definitely not a commoner. He is an elite. Okay. Uh, 
we also have the hamartea. The hamartea is a vice or moral flaw the hero possesses. This has often been tragically translated to tragic flaw. Um, this is, I think at this point, widely acknowledged to be not, not a good translation, not what Aristotle intended. Um, it's probably better defined or better translated, according to things I've read, merely as error. Not really a tragic flaw that leads to the fall of the hero, but, it, but an error, a mistake the, the hero makes. Um, so the best tragedies move from a good or bad position to a moral error. You know, so we have some, something's going wrong and eventually this builds up to a, a moral problem. Okay. Um, another term Aristotle employs is catharsis. Catharsis is the response to tragedy. Uh, and it's translated in at least three different ways. Purgation, purification, or clarification. When the feeling of catharsis is purgative, it is therapeutic. It, it heals you. And this is a, a big part of Aristotle's work. And, and really what seems to be taken today, the idea of catharsis is you get upset, you cry from watching the tragedy, and then after this is kind of feeling of elation as you as you heal, right? And this is kind of the purgative or purgation view of catharsis. Um, in the 20th century, especially if anybody here knows the, the plays of Bertolt Brecht, who was a, a mid-20th century playwright, and Brecht saw catharsis as the big problem with plays. So when his plays were supposed to inspire social revolution and social change, he saw catharsis as getting in the way of inspiring social change because of that purgation, because people healed. And he was like, no, I, I don't want people to heal. I want them to stay upset. Uh, and actually for Brecht, it wasn't even staying upset. It was staying critical. He wanted his, his audience to be critical of the world they were in. But for Brecht, catharsis was the great enemy because of purgation. Okay, purification. Um, we talk about this a lot less, but drama, tragedy can purify our emotions, make them more beautiful. They don't save us from our emotions. Going back to Plato, who saw this just as the worst thing ever, but it, it makes them more beautiful. And then lastly, clarification. Um, this is when it gives a, a perfect clarity moment, a moment of perfect enlightenment when we understand something. So again, this is anti-Platonic, right? This is anti-Plato because it doesn't drive us mad. It heals us. Uh, our emotions are not the enemy. There's something beautiful that, um, that, that require treatment, right? That require care. And it doesn't lead us astray into madness and therefore make us unproductive citizens or undemocratic citizens or, or whatever. Rather, it helps lead us to enlightenment. Um, and so for Aristotle, he believes that great art can inspire a great age. And this brings us back to the first part of the lecture, the, the story of the Peloponnesian War. 
this is a work and this is a philosophy that comes at a time and to a people who have lost their great age. And so Aristotle's hope is that great art, the great tragedies of his culture, could inspire a, a new great era in, in Greece, a great era in, um, in Athens. And Aristotle, I, I don't know if we know for sure, but it is widely believed he was the tutor of Alexander the Great, who does have a certain greatness and does create a, an amazingly large empire. He's kind of the next big thing in this part of the world, and also in India, and uh, almost also in Rome. He gets close to, to getting Italy. I think his brother-in-law, who's also named was Alexander, tries to get Italy, but you know, whatever. The idea is this is a work written at a time of loss. Um, and so the last thing I'll say is, is about genre. Um, and Aristotle is a defender of genre, of category. Uh, and we often can say that when it comes to genre studies, the studies of how things are categorized, that Aristotle is the inventor of that. He should he believed that trage tragedies should have unhappy endings. Um, apparently tragedies didn't. I, I don't know of any of those that survived, but some apparently did. So he thought, no, very bad, unhappy ending. Um, and he thought that this was so important that he actually said there are natural internal laws, laws derived from the nature of the world that gear the genre towards its categories. So towards its characteristics, excuse me, so that um, a tragedy should end unhappily because it is in the nature of the genre of tragedy to do so. That was his very, very strong point. And if, you know, somebody wants to ask or talk about uh, kind of the um, natural law theory, that's a, that's a very important part of uh, Western philosophy that also comes at this time from Aristotle. And it, it kind of bubbles up here when he talks about the nature of genre. All right. And lastly, tragedy fuses the general with the concrete. He binds the particulars of history with the universal truths of philosophy. Okay. And that is the lecture for today. Thank you for listening, and I will see you on Wednesday.